0: Uh, We do this Easter egg hunt every year, and we do it on Easter weekend, and we do it to show love to the Gallatin Valley community. It's just one of the things that we do, to serve and show love to our community. We did that hunt yesterday. How many of you were out there at the big practice fields up at the big unit? Yeah, a few of you there. How many of you served out there? Yeah, some of you. Way to go, all of you. And so the hunt itself starts at 11 o'clock straight up, and so we thought, well, let's take a picture at 10.58. Let's see what the eggs look like at 10.58, and there they are. That's about 40,000 eggs. Uh, There they are, a whole, whole, whole bunch of eggs. And then we said, all right, let's take a picture two minutes later and let's see what this thing looks like. (laughs) There's like little Hoover vacuums out there just sucking those things up. It's uh, absolutely fantastic. Way to go, all of you who served and helped make that thing go so well. I think the community was blessed and served and felt love. I have a great idea for next year. And uh, we're going to try to execute that and make that happen. I'm not going to tell you what it is, of course. I'm just going to tease you a bit with it. So the crux of Easter is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died, isn't it? He gave his life for you and for me. The sinless, spotless Son of God died in my place, in your place, in place of all of humanity, and they buried him in a tomb, and he rose from the dead, and he lives today. Today. That is the central message of the whole of the Christian faith. And you ask the question, well, wh- why? Why did Jesus do that? Why did God let that happen? And John 3.16 captures that real well, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. That's it. He loved. He loves. Humanity, see, mattered so much to God that he provided his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place. We are people, see, who deserve to die eternally as payment for our sin, so that we could go free, so that we could live with God forever and ever, starting right here, and it isn't just about heaven someday after this life is over. It's about right here, right now, a new quality, a new quantity of life with him. And when you think about that, it really ought to blow your mind, shouldn't it? And it's mind-blowing to me because you see, this holy and just and perfect God presides over his entire universe, and all crimes against his holiness, which is what sin is, a crime against the holiness of God, all crimes must be paid for. There has to be a penalty, see. And it works the same in a just society like ours. Any judge with any amount of integrity would do the very same thing. All crimes must be paid for. Uh, pretend with me for just a moment that you are a judge. Pretend you're your favorite TV judge, maybe Judge Judy or whatever, and you get to be uh, the judge. And imagine one day that a person who embezzled a large amount of money from their employer, ran off to Vegas, blew it all in a gambling spree. They got caught. And now it's their day to appear before you in your courtroom. And here's your job as the judge. It's your job to see to it that this person's crime is paid for. And in order for justice to prevail, in order for a just society to continue, someone has to get punished for that crime that's been committed. And let's just say that the trial happens, this person's been found guilty, and now it's sentencing time. And you're the person, because you're the judge, you're actually the one who hands down that sentence. And in the case of embezzlement, the sentence would very likely be a fine. You would have to repay the embezzled funds, and then you would serve a prison term or so. Now, you're the judge, remember. And you're a tender, compassionate person to your core, right? But you're also, because you're a judge, entirely committed to justice. It is your job to be just. And so despite your compassion, despite how bad you feel when someone walks away facing a stiff prison sentence, an enormous fine— and what not, when a crime is committed, it's your job to see to it that justice is served, that the crime is paid for, that punishment is meted out. And imagine, you hand down the sentence. You hand down the fine. You tell this person they have to repay the embezzled funds, and then you say, and you're going to go to prison for a decade, 10 years. And you say that to this embezzling, gambling, a convicted felon, right? And you sort of hand all that down, but then pretend that you get up from behind your bench, and you take off your black judicial robe, and you pull out your checkbook, and you stroke a check, and you pay all the money due from your personal retirement account. You pay the fine, all of it, for that person, and then you voluntarily exchange yourself for the guilty person, and you serve the entire prison sentence yourself. Imagine that you do all that. And then consider, what do you think the response would be of that embezzling, gambling, convicted felon as they were set free, as they were walking out of the courtroom? You think they'd be shocked? Better believe it. Would they sort of disbelieve that it was even happening? Yeah. Would they have a sense of wonderment that washes over them? Absolutely. But would they be grateful? Pfft, darn right they'd be grateful, right? You can just imagine that person sort of scratching their head as they're walking out of the courtroom going like, why? Why would anybody pay my crime? Why would somebody absorb my punishment? Why would somebody substitute their life for mine voluntarily? Like, there was no compulsion. Nobody made them do it. And therein you have the obvious parallel to the central message of the whole Of the Christian faith our God is a holy just perfect righteous God and he said you know crimes against my holiness they have to be paid for there must be consequences there must be punishment for sins committed against my holiness there just has to be the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death that is eternal separation from God forever in a very real place the Bible calls it hell that's eternal condemnation for all sinners And at the same time, the Bible also tells tells us in another verse in the book of Romans that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person who's ever lived, who ever will live, except the person of Jesus Christ, fits into the category of those who are guilty of moral failure. That's us. And so you see this loving, holy, righteous, perfect, just God sees all of us, every person who's ever been created, all of us in His image, as people who matter to him, people whom he loves. And he sees that we all, every one of us, are headed for an eternal condemnation because we've all sinned. We've all committed crimes against his holiness. And he did this absolutely amazing thing. He sends Jesus, God in human flesh, to shoulder all of the consequences of the sin of all people. Every single one of them are going to be laid on the shoulders of his son. All the punishment, all the condemnation, all the crimes, all the sentences, all the fines are going to be laid on the shoulders of Jesus, lifted off of us and put onto him. Wow. And our sins are so serious, they're so numerous, they're so grave that death is the only just sentence, really, A little fine or a few-decade prison term or even just a trip out to the woodshed for a good old-fashioned butt-whooping would never do. It just wouldn't be just. So the Bible tells us that Jesus, who is the Son of God, get that, willingly, voluntarily, lovingly, courageously took your place and my place, paying for our crimes with his life, with his blood. He paid for the crimes against God, for the sins of the whole world, making it possible for guilty parties, that's us, to go free to be forgiven, to inherit eternal life with God forever, starting right here, right now, and continuing on forever and ever and ever. And Jesus did an amazing thing right before he died, right before he breathed his last. He said while he was hanging on the cross, it is finished. Remember that? It is finished. And what he was saying with that statement was, you know, I've taken it, I've done it, I did it, I've shouldered the entire sins of the entire world, I've taken it all. I've lifted it off of your shoulders and I've placed it onto my own, and I'm paying Price, and after he cried out those words, It is finished. The world shook, didn't it? The sky went black, rocks split open. It was the single most cataclysmic event, literally, in all of world history. The cosmos sort of went into convulsions. His death on behalf of us was an earth shattering portrayal of his love, and it was literally an earth shattering portrayal of his love. He did that for you, and he did that for me, because we mattered to him more than we will ever ever, ever understand. And that is the basic message of the whole of the Christian faith, isn't it? Summarized, captured. And I believe that every single one of you here can actually understand everything that I've just said there. A child can understand. It isn't shrouded in any kind of mystery. It isn't cloaked in any kind of confusing language. It's quite straightforward, is it not? You might even call it truth on the bottom shelf so that we can all get it. God made sure of that, that the essence of the Christian message was So straightforward and so clearly spelled out. And it means, because it's so clear and because it's so easily spelled out, it means that a lot of people get it up here in their heads, right? A lot of people believe in Jesus up here in their heads, right? A lot of people call themselves Christians. After all, they go to church, especially at Easter and maybe sometimes at Christmas too. Maybe some people, they call themselves Christians because their parents or grandparents were Christians and so they're sort of riding their parents' and grandparents' coattails and so Maybe some people, they call themselves Christians because, well, at the end of a sermon one time, they repeated a prayer, and maybe they even came down to the altar once, and a pastor prayed with them. Lots of people call themselves Christians because they got a stack of Bibles in their house. Maybe people call themselves Christians sometimes because they showed up in a church directory. That would surely make you a Christian, would it not? Look, my name is in the church directory. Lots of people call themselves Christians because they went to a summer camp once, or maybe because they have all the ringtones on their cell phones, their Chris Tomlin worship songs, and that would certainly make you a Christian, right? Maybe they've at some point worn witness wear, right? They're a Christian because they've witnessed through the very clothing that they wear. Maybe lots of people call themselves Christians because, well, they kiss dating goodbye at some point in their life. Maybe under their religious view on Facebook, it says, well, I'm a Christ follower, Some people who call themselves Christians, they do this thing, they say, bless their heart every time, right before they absolutely lambast and gossip about someone. You see, the point is that it's awfully easy to get, understand, and believe in Jesus up here in our heads, isn't it? And lots of people do that. They get, believe, understand the message of Jesus Christ up here in our heads. But let me ask the question, what if being a real deal follower of Jesus Christ isn't so much about belief and our typical understanding of belief like up here in our head, as it is about how that belief actually affects your life, about how that belief actually changes you, how that belief actually impacts the way that you live, the way you treat your family, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat the people that you work with and for, who work for you, how that belief affects you to the core of your being. And I was pondering all these things this week, and I had a lot to think about. There's a lot sort of all tied up in all of this, resurrection, Easter, deal, and I had a most unexpected visitor over in my office, and every once in a while they'll just set up a video camera or two over in my office to sort of capture my work and make sure I'm actually doing something, and, well, this unexpected visitor showed up while those cameras happened to be rolling, and, well, we get to show it to you today, so watch this.
1: Come in. Hey, Brian. What are you doing here? Nah, I just wondered if you had a minute. Not for you. Right, come on now. That's not very nice. I actually have a lot of valuable information to share. Doubt it. Come to hell. Hey,
0: hey, 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 Get behind
1: me. Oh, Satan. Okay, okay, okay. Let 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 me just get to the point. Yeah, do that. And by
0: the way, I am all prayed up today, so no use even trying to tempt.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm not here to tempt you, Brian. I, I actually have a proposition for you. <laughs> I love how you... Twist this stuff up every time. Just just hear me out. Just hear me out before before you decide. In essence, what I want to do is I want to send more people to Journey Church. Yeah. What? Now I have your attention. I admit I'm intrigued, but I'm sure you have an angle. How about this? I will stop harassing you if... uh, mm Ah! The, the catch, what, like if we stop telling people about God or no, something? No, actually I don't mind that so much. You can tell them about God. Really? Yeah, like, I, I hear all the time, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person, I go to church. You know, but really, you should check out Facebook and see how many people's religious view says Christian. <laughs> Satan's on Facebook. There's another ringing endorsement. Yeah, that's right. You you probably haven't liked my fan page just, no. just yet. yet. What 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 am I missing here? Doesn't cramp your style that we're telling people about God? No, no, not at all. Actually, here's a little secret. Yeah. I believe in God. You don't say. Yeah, and. He sort of freaks me out.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, exactly right. Like in the New Testament when James says, you believe that there is a God, good! Even the demons do and they,
1: what, shudder? Ugh. Well, it is fairly, fairly creepy. Uh, but anyway, tell, tell people about God all you want. Like I won't prevent them from, from coming to Journey Church on one condition. Go on. You've got to stop challenging them to act on their belief. I beg your pardon? You know, serving the community, serving their church, not without you, blah blah blah. Like that ridiculous Easter egg hunt, who stuffs 50,000 eggs? We do. I mean, fine. People have to get tired of making a difference, don't they? Uh, Apparently not. Well. Don't you get tired of issuing the challenge? Well, it does have its ups and downs. Good! Let's compromise. You keep doing your job, right, and tell, tell people about God, but stop, stop telling them to do something meaningful with their pitiful little lives.
0: You're saying stop challenging them to walk out, live out, flesh out their belief in God? Exactly! Everyone
1: wins. It's a pleasure doing business with you.
0: No deal.
1: Don't be unreasonable, Brian. Or like, just think about how much easier it would be if you didn't have to challenge Journey Church to live it out and act out on their belief. Like, think about how much shorter your sermons would be. Wouldn't that be not only better for you, but better for everyone else too? I'm sure it would, but... Of course it would. Look, the truth is, they don't need to do anything more than believe that there there is one God. Like, that's enough. You should tell them that. I couldn't agree with you any less. No,
0: you're just being obstinate, Brian. Not at all. I I know exactly where you're going with this whole deal. You don't mind if they say that they have faith in God, so long as they don't do anything about it. But what good is belief without action, Satan? (laughs) Fine, fine, fine.
1: Belief by itself isn't enough. Faith without works is dead, or whatever that stupid Bible says.
0: Excellent. Can I quote you on that?
1: Absolutely not. This conversation never happened. Well, actually, no big deal, Brian. It's not like it's my first lie. Yep. Hey, now, hey, now. Come on, friend. Come on. Brian. Friend? I am not your friend. Neighbor? No, not a chance. Mmm, acquaintance. Bye bye. And here, I thought we were going to have a compromise. Don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out. I'll take my propositions elsewhere.
0: Works for me. I'm so (laughs) glad... Yes. I'm so glad the cameras were there, because if I just told you that happened, you wouldn't have believed it, right? So, there it is. Now, don't get me wrong... Right beliefs are absolutely crux for salvation. They are. Look at Romans 10, 9 and 10 from the Bible. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Right beliefs appear in our heads. They're crux for being saved, absolutely. But the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, is one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, with his reference to our heart's involvement in faith is pointing to the all-encompassing nature of faith in Jesus. It isn't just belief up here in our head. Paul isn't just referring to the sort of superficial confession. Yeah, I believe all that stuff about God and Jesus, and so I'm in, I get to go to heaven when I die. Whoa, accompanied by this sort of token, quote-unquote, faith. After that, Paul says, uh-uh. He says saving faith in Jesus is a faith and a belief that takes hold of the whole of our inner being. All of us, all of us, our entire lives and beings. And what is it that we believe so that we can partake in this saving faith? That God raised him, that's Jesus, from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is of critical importance. Today matters in the history of the world. Sure, it's absolutely on the cross that God did his saving work. But we don't just believe in a dead martyr, do we? We believe in a living, risen Savior. And not only did Jesus die for our sins, God raised him triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, all forces of evil. And then if you turn in your Bible to the book of James... The biblical writer, a guy named James, he affirms Paul's view that to be saved means so much more than just intellectual assent and acknowledgement. Look at James 2, starting in verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? I just want to say there's a whole heap of stuff going on in James 2, 17 to 20 that time will not allow us to forge all the way into today. But suffice it to say that James is talking about we who follow Jesus Christ living our faith in such a way that it has integrity with what we say we believe. Integrity with what we say we believe. James goes to quite great lengths to clarify the nature and boundaries of this faith in God. He's saying, look, a quote faith that consists of mere intellectual assent to some doctrine, some system of belief, is not actually faith at all. It's dead, James says. And that won't actually save anybody. A dead faith won't save anybody from anything. Because you see, true saving faith in Jesus Christ is about linking our beliefs with our entire life, with what we do, with what we say. Anything else, according to James, is a, quote, faith that is unable to achieve salvation. Now, just so you don't think that this is some left-field view of what it means to be a Christ follower, I want to show you the words of Jesus himself revealing for us that our belief in him is meant to affect the very way that we live. Look at Mark 1 from the Bible. Here's what it says. Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. This is the very outset of Jesus' earthly ministry. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom of God, and when you hear those words kingdom of God, think God's power, God's presence, and God's reign. God's power, God's presence, and God's reign. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus says it's become available. The kingdom has become available to ordinary human beings. You, all of us, can live in it if you want to. You can walk right on in. Anybody and everybody can. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's what very often happens. We tend to substitute another, quote, gospel in place of the one that Jesus actually preached very often. Now we would never go so far as to put it in these words, but the quote gospel that a lot of people carry around with them in their minds is the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. That's the gospel that a lot of people carry around in their heads and in their hearts. The very minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Now, no one wants to go to hell, right? And so lots of people try to do this bare minimum gospel thing solely for the purpose of avoiding hell. Nobody right in their mind, would want to go there. And there's a tragic result of this thinking, and it's this lack of connection between a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our lives every single day, a major disconnect. Where in the world in the New Testament does Jesus ever say, now sit down please, I'm going to tell you the minimum entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. He never did, not ever, because that is not his gospel. His gospel, again, in a brilliant paraphrase from a guy named Dallas Willard from Mark one fifteen. Willard, by the way, is one of the best writers I know of about the truth of the kingdom of God. He paraphrases Mark one fifteen. He says it like this. All the preliminaries have been taken care of and the kingdom of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living and base your entire life on this remarkable opportunity. Base your entire life on this remarkable opportunity. That's Jesus' gospel. Because of and through Jesus' death, sacrifice, his rising, all the preliminaries have been taken care of. And now God's power, God's presence, and God's reign, they're directly available to anybody who wants them. So turn from your sins, Jesus says. Stop sinning. Review your plans for living. Think it through again. And believe and trust and risk your life. Abandon your life. Base your life on this remarkable opportunity. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Absolutely. It includes the promise of forgiveness of our sins as God's gift of grace. Yes, Jesus' gospel includes the promise that death isn't going to have the last word, that our eternal life with God will not ever, ever cease. But it is so much more than that. It's about bringing the kingdom right here and right now. Because when you think about it, Jesus really came as the great kingdom of God bringer, and he inaugurates us into that same mission, that same purpose. Now, if you'd permit me, I'd like to illustrate all of this, sort of scoop it up and put a bow on top of it by unpacking what I understand to be a true story. There was a famous tightrope walker who one time strung a cable across Niagara Falls from the American side all the way to the Canadian side. And to the applause of thousands and thousands of people, he would walk across that tightrope on the very edge of the falls, the rushing, cascading waters thundering underneath him, and he would walk back and forth, people applauding wildly, And then to further wow the crowds, he would put a blindfold on and go back and forth across that tightrope. Then he would ride a bicycle back and forth across that tightrope. He would actually push a wheelbarrow back and forth across that tightrope. And every day, thousands of people would come out and watch him. He was simply the greatest. As the story goes, one day while he was pushing that wheelbarrow back and forth, he called out to the crowd on one side of the tightrope, inquiring whether or not they thought he could successfully push the wheelbarrow across with a human being riding inside of it. What do you think the crowd did? They went absolutely berserk, didn't they? Of course you can. You're the best. You're remarkable. We've watched you for days and days. We understand and we appreciate your skills. We believe in your abilities. You are the greatest. On and on and on they went. To which the tightrope walker responded, then someone volunteer. You come right up here. You form a single file line and you get in this wheelbarrow and you prove your belief in my ability. You know what happened next? A deafening silence overtook The crowd could have heard a pin drop. And there were no takers. Because mental assent or even verbal assent is not real belief, is it? Everyone in the audience understood his act. They believed entirely in his abilities. But when the moment of truth came for them to demonstrate their belief in his abilities by placing their lives into his hands, nobody stepped forward, not a single person. Now, I want to get this image in your head. It's the same story. I just want to make a few tweaks if you'll permit me. I want you to imagine in your head that very same scene, tightrope stretched across Niagara Falls, and all of us, all of sinful humanity, are standing on the Canadian side of that tightrope. Seems like a fitting place for sinners to stand on the Canadian side, right? (laughs) Just kidding. I love Canada. Oh, Canada, let's sing together. Sorry, Canada. Forgive me. So sinful humanity is standing on the Canadian side, and there's God. He's standing on the American side. That's appropriate, isn't it? There's the rushing, cascading waterfall thundering in the chasm between the two sides of the river. Now, the Bible tells us there is this uncrossable chasm between sinful humanity and the holiness of God. Sin separates us from being able to be in relationship with God. I want you to imagine that God shouts across to the crowd on the far Canadian side, all you people over there, I want you to know how much I love you, how much you matter to me. Even though you've sinned, you've failed many, many times, you matter. And because of my love for you, though, I've arranged to have my only son, Jesus, pay for your sins by dying on the cross, taking your punishment upon himself. That's all been accomplished. All the preliminaries have been taken care of, and God shouts across, do you get it? Do you understand that? And then God goes on. All that remains now is for you to let my son Jesus Christ escort you across the chasm on the tightrope in the wheelbarrow. One by one by one. And God says he's done it before countless times, and he's never, ever, ever dropped anybody. He's not going to drop you. And just remember, Jesus is the only way to cross this chasm. And so come on, God says, come on, form a line, act on what you believe to be true demonstrate your belief. And so then God sends Jesus across the tightrope. He pushes the wheelbarrow across and he stands facing the sea of humanity there on the Canadian side. And he says, I know you know who I am. I know you understand what I've already done for you, death, hell, and the grave, and so. But understanding up here, it just isn't enough. It is not enough. You must act on your understanding individually, one by one by one. That means you gotta actually get into this wheelbarrow. You gotta get in, and you gotta trust me, and you gotta let me take you all the way across to God's side after all. I am the only way, Jesus says. And so who's gonna be first in line? Who's gonna be first to act on what you believe to be true? Who's gonna be the first to demonstrate belief? And right there is when the troops thin out in a hurry, isn't it? Because you see, believing the Christian message in our head, it's quite easy, it's quite simple. But then actually allowing for that belief to affect our behavior, that's what separates the men from the boys, as they say. The kind of belief that involves action is always challenging, always difficult, because you see, it strips away all that we want to hold on to, all that we want to cling to, all that we want to clutch. And today, it's the very same question that you're all faced with. You believe the message. Jesus is the only way that any of us can be reconciled to God. He's the only one who is capable of forgiving you. He's the only one capable of taking you across the chasm of sin and presenting you acceptable to a holy, perfect, righteous God on the other side. He's the only way. And so the question lands. How many of you today are willing to act on that belief in such a way that it will change the entire course of your life? Willing to act in such a way that it will change the entire course of of your life. How many of you are willing today to say, I'm expressing that belief, I'm getting into the wheelbarrow. I'm gonna set about living the life of a Christ follower the very best I know how to do. I'm committing my life to Jesus. All of my life, all of my life, not, not just up here. All of my life, all of my behavior, everything that I do, everything that I say, the way I lead my family, the way I conduct my business affairs, the way I treat the people that work for me, work with me, work alongside of me all of my life? How many of you are ready to do that today? Because it's the question that we're all faced with. I'm gonna ask you just to go to prayer, if you would. Just close your eyes and bow your heads and get quiet with the Lord. And I just invite you to think on this with him. Think on that question. How many of you today are willing to act On that belief in such a way that it changes the entire course of your life. Not just belief in your head, but belief that transforms you, transforms everything about your life the way you think, the way you act, the way you treat people, the way you appropriate your finances, all of it. And if that transaction is the true desire of your heart, you begin that by confessing to God. You say, God, look, I get it. I'm a sinner. I realize that everything in my life has been going counter to you. I'm in desperate need of your forgiveness. I can't cross the chasm without you, Jesus. And so please come into my life. Please forgive me for my sins. I want to know you more than I want anything else in this entire world. I want your forgiveness. And I get it, Jesus. I absolutely get it that you took my place. You shouldered the consequences, the punishment for my sin when you died on the cross in my place. I get it. But what's different now is I'm choosing to personally appropriate it in my life. I'm embracing it. I'm embracing you. Here I am. Here's every single bit of me. I'm climbing into the wheelbarrow. Asking you, Jesus, please take me across to God. And if there's those of you who are here today who are saying, yeah, I'm tired of just hearing about or knowing about the love of God, I want to experience it firsthand. Those of you who are saying, I want to turn back to God. Those of you saying, I desperately need forgiveness for my sins. Those of you saying, I want to start over. I want to be new. I'm surrendering my all to you. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in anything or anyone else except you, Jesus. If you're saying, I wanna live the kind of belief that changes my entire life, if that's your prayer today, would you just real boldly lift your hands up and say, that's me, right here, right now, today. That is me, once and for all. Back there to my left, absolutely. And there and there, absolutely. Yes, yes. I'm just saying yes with you. I'm standing with you, yes. I'm gonna pray for you. Don't be shy, just hold your hands up and make sure I catch your eye, please. Over there, yeah, way to go. To my right and there, yes. To my right over here, absolutely. Saying yes with you, all of you, there. Way to go, way to go. Here, yes, absolutely. Life won't ever be the same. Changed, the whole trajectory of your existence. Now and for all of eternity. Jesus, we want to live a faith that's real and vibrant and is life-affecting, all-encompassing. That doesn't just occupy the space between our ears, God. We want it to occupy the space of our entire heart and lives. And so please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, do that. Because we can't do it in our own strength. It requires you inside of us expanding our hearts, enlarging our heart, for the things of you, God. Would you call us out, please, God, when you see us living counter to that kind of a life? When you see us living a life that lacks integrity, God, would you call us out and would you set us straight? Because we want to please you. That's what we want more than anything. We want to please you with our whole lives. You matter most to us, God. We worship you You are the best and we are such grateful recipients of every single thing that you've done.